Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ellen, I've been thinking about our lives as reporters, when we were just a few women among all those men, and how some of our reporting made our bosses uh, nervous because we were seeing things differently. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening. We begin tonight. Like the piece I did in 1984 on Geraldine Ferraro, the first female vice presidential candidate on a major party ticket. She was Catholic and pro choice, and on one campaign stop, she'd been picketed by anti abortion protesters. Here's how I signed off that night Ferraro said she believes she's been targeted in part because she's a woman. In other words, the first national candidate who can talk about abortion and use the word, I. Lynn Schur, ABC News, with the Ferraro campaign. They probably worried that you were expressing an opinion, right? (laughs) Exactly. I was just reporting the facts. I guess we took some adjusting, too, as we reached a critical mass in the nation's sitting rooms and anchor booths and started to change the way women were perceived and covered. The Ferraro campaign was a real marker in our careers. I was a columnist, so was expected to offer my opinions, but not to identify with the politician. I remember standing on the floor of the convention in San Francisco when I heard her say, By choosing a woman to run for our nation's second highest office, you send a powerful signal to all Americans. There are no doors we cannot unlock. And I thought we were also opening doors. For the first time, women were covering a vice presidential candidate talking about women's rights and calling them our rights. For the first time, the spouse was a man. For the first time, the political uniform was not a dark suit, but a white jacket with a skirt. A lot of us shared a very unprofessional case of goosebumps, even if we didn't tell that to our editors. There were even more goosebumps this year, Ellen, when Kamala Harris became the first woman of color on a national ticket and started off paying homage to her foremothers and sisters. What we felt then and what we feel now, such a far cry from what had existed in the pre-liberated days, all those sexist headlines. Remember this one? 1969. Golda Meir, grandmother of six, elected prime minister of Israel. I mean, the leader of nearly three million people, a veteran Israeli cabinet member, and she's identified only as a grandmother? As if her ovaries were her prime political asset? What's your favorite? I'll take an earlier one, 1964, long before I got to ABC News and you got to the Boston Globe. A new reporter was headlined by Variety, the entertainment newspaper, this way. Tap Marlene Sanders as ABC News Hen. News Hen! I mean, really? (laughs) Headlines, straight out of the mail style book. 
The same challenge faced by our foremothers in the suffrage movement when they tried to overturn the bias of the male press a century earlier. I'm Lynn Scher. I'm Ellen Goodman, and this is She Votes, a podcast about our battle for the ballot. The nearly all-male press of the 19th century, like that of our own younger days, swallowed whole and perpetuated the accepted social stereotypes. Women certainly shouldn't raise their political voices. Back in 1848, newspaper reporters called the Seneca Falls Convention an absurdity, attended by women they described as either Amazons to be feared or dull and uninteresting, hardly worth noticing, or, wait for it, unwomanly. Susan B. Anthony, a healthy, fit woman who was generous of spirit, was usually drawn in cartoons as a wizened old creature wielding a rolled-up umbrella, the better to beat you upside the head with. It reminds me how early feminists of the second wave in the late 1960s were described by mostly male reporters as bra-burning, hairy-legged harridans. Snide male headline writers turned women's liberation activists into libbers. Oh, yes, the press can be very glib. Nothing new there. Women seeking the right to vote in the 1800s called themselves suffragists, but some guy at a paper in England dismissed them as suffragettes, as in kitchenette, laundrette, drum majorette. <laughs> oh, all pint sized copies of the real thing. British activists slyly co opted the term suffragette and turned it into a battle cry. Over here, most women preferred the term suffragist. What the press says matters. That's the story we're telling in this episode. How the press both reflects public opinion and also sways it, how it upholds the status quo and changes it, and how the women's suffrage movement finally figured out how to use the press to help win the cause. Linda Steiner teaches journalism at the University of Maryland. She says in the early days, the battle for the ballot, when covered at all, was treated like just another female hobby. Editorially, the mainstream newspapers essentially either ignored the suffrage movement or they dismissed it as kind of crazy and eccentric and totally implausible. Example. A woman is nobody. A wife is everything. The ladies of Philadelphia are resolved to maintain their rights as wives, virgins, and mothers, and not as women. Philadelphia Public Ledger, 1848. Another example. We saw in broad daylight in a public hall in the city of New York a gathering of unsexed women publicly propounding the doctrine that they should be allowed to step out of their appropriate sphere and mingle in the busy walks of everyday life. We do not stoop to argue against so ridiculous a set of ideas. New York Herald, 1853. And so I think really what gave people a sense of what the suffrage movement was really trying to do, which was not only win the vote for women, but create a whole new woman in the first place who deserved the vote, people really had to go to the suffrage newspapers to get a sense of that. 
She's describing the emergence of a lively alternative press that both promoted the right to vote and helped create a new kind of woman. It gave women a place to bond. Over time, there were at least 250 newspapers and publications that dealt with the deeper meaning of suffrage. Best known was the revolution. Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton's short-lived, very radical weekly that promised men their rights and nothing more, women their rights and nothing less. Lucy Stone's less radical woman's journal lasted much longer. Linda Steiner filled us in on some of the other free-thinking newspapers. The Lily, which I think was easily called the first suffrage newspaper, it actually began as a newspaper to advocate temperance, that is, abolition of alcohol. And it was founded by Amelia Bloomer. And its motto was the emancipation of women from intemperance, injustice, prejudice, and bigotry. Another one was called the Woman's Advocate. Its motto was devoted to woman, her emancipation from religion, social, political, and moral slavery. They were really saying to all the other women readers, you can do this too. The list goes on. The women's exponent created by and for Mormon women in Utah who were among the first to get the right to vote. And the feisty New Northwest published in Portland, Oregon by Abigail Scott Dunaway. She was very critical of women who were in favor of temperance or who were prohibitionists. She just thought that that was ridiculous and that women had the same right to drink if they wanted to. And she also talked about the treatment of Chinese people on the West Coast. She talked about policies about American Indians. One of the few male publishers to take woman suffrage seriously was Frederick Douglass, whose publication, The North Star, promised, right is of no sex, truth is of no color. More mainstream African-American papers were less generous, often making fun of the possibility of their female readers voting. Boston suffragist Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin tried to remedy that with the woman's era. It was really the only black women's newspaper that was prominent on the suffrage front. But she was really concerned that the black press wasn't covering black women's suffrage. In one editorial in 1894, Ruffin told her readers that the only solution was for women to control their own paper. Lynn, these were the Ms. Magazines of their day giving women what they couldn't find in the male-run mainstream publications. Every issue would have letters that said, reading your newspaper is like talking across the fence with a neighbor. So this was a way of sort of creating a, almost a, a national community. At the same time, suffragists were learning about public relations how to get publicity from male reporters. They created spectacular events that proved irresistible to the hungry mainstream media. They learned that they had to be in public to be heard. They had to go into the streets to attract any kind of attention. Linda Lumsden, journalism professor at the University of Arizona, said the reporting finally changed in the early 1900s 
When women learned how to feed the media maw. They were inspired by the more in-your-face approach of British suffragettes. One of the new generation of Americans actively promoting such tactics was the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Okay, as Harriet Stanton Blatch, who had been in England, um, said in her memoirs, we really needed to appeal to the emotions. It had to be spectacle. We wasn't talking about giving rational arguments or using reason. There had to be lots of music. There had to be beautiful banners. Votes for women, women's suffrage now, in color coordinated contingents. So it was very striking to the eye. Everybody loves a parade, especially the press. And so a parade of parades over the next decade. Bright colors and lots of action made for the front page, carefully calculated to get reporters and photographers on the story and on their side. Women first put it to the test in New York City in February 1908. A handful of suffragists, a tiny little parade up Fifth Avenue from Union Square, but the impact was, well, wow. Uh, 1908, you're going to have these first half dozen women. It's a Sunday, so they can't get a parade permit, uh, but they march anyway. Uh, the cops are following them. A thousand people, almost all men, are following them. That's a wait a minute, wait a minute. You said a half dozen, there's six women? Yes, <laughs> that's it. That's the very first one. <laughs> this is a big deal. Women marching down the street. These are middle class women. Um, they're white women. It's something of an oddity. Uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of those men were, were, were jeering, laughing, but they did follow them. They made it to the newspapers. They got some publicity. Some ratio, Ellen, six women, nine daily newspapers in New York City in 1908. But the coverage of women's suffrage began to morph from ridicule into news, something new. The newspaper coverage wasn't hostile, but it was more like, it was like maybe there was a dog talking on the street corner. They were curious. <laughs> a dog on a soapbox. Exactly, right. This is, this is odd. Women speaking in public, women on the streets, women asking for the vote. It was all very perplexing to them. And that soapbox thing? That's women standing on literal soapboxes. Big wooden crates turned upside down, facing often hostile crowds. It took huge courage. But it got results and the attention they wanted, then was repeated again and again and again. 1910, another New York City parade. This time, 300 women riding in automobiles and marching. They got more attention and they got good press. Um, New York Times, again, it's, you go to the editorial, they're saying women shouldn't vote, they should stay home. The New York Times was anti-suffragist. Yes, it was, yeah. Um, as many papers were, the New York Times is pretty seriously anti-suffragist. Example, women in this country do not need the ballot to secure their rights. Still less is suffrage needed to protect them from wrong. The New York Times editorial, 1908. But their coverage is saying that, boy, a lot of these women, this is the first time they've ever done anything like this. A lot were scared, but they were resolute. And that's a good thing. That shows courage, um, something that normally was not associated with, with women. Did the press coverage make a difference at that point? I think it did. The fact that the press was covering it made a difference. 
you know, the agenda setting theory of media, if the press pays attention to something, it, it automatically becomes something important, something people think about. And then you also too, you know, like I said, it's, it's pretty positive coverage. These popular parades from New York to Iowa to California showed off the broad reach of the movement. Hispanic suffragists in New Mexico marched with their Anglo sisters in Santa Fe to demand a federal amendment for the vote. Authorities turned them down, but the press coverage was huge. Back in New York, one paper featured Mabel Pinghua Lee, a teenage Chinese immigrant described as the symbol of the new era. Mabel led one group of marchers on horseback. Chinese girl wants vote, read the headline. All these demonstrations were buildups for the first national suffrage parade in Washington, D.C. Now that would make the newspaper boys sit up and notice. It was the brainstorm of another young newcomer to the suffrage stage. Her name was Alice Paul. She was a Quaker who'd gone to England after college and been swayed by the attention-getting, brassy street theater of British suffrage activists. The TV movie Iron-Jawed Angels imagined the moment when Alice realized the media possibilities in the U.S. Capitol. The 1913 parade might be a huge turning point. In the movie, Alice turns to her friend Lucy Burns and says... You want to be two girls on a corner soapbox, or do you want to go to Washington and play with the big lads? Alice and Lucy decided to play with the big lads, or ladies. Throw some bedding on a bunch of different mattresses, and sure, they all look alike. The same goes for pillows. But peel away the layers, look at what's inside, and you'll see they are not all created equal. That's what makes every purple pillow and mattress unlike anything you've ever slept on. The purple grid sets the purple mattress apart from every other mattress. It's a patented comfort technology that instantly adapts to your body's natural shape and sleep style. With more than 1,800 open-air channels designed to neutralize body heat, purple provides a cooling effect other mattresses can't replicate. And this cutting-edge technology doesn't stop with the mattresses. Every purple pillow is engineered with the grid for total head and neck support and absolute airflow. So you're always on the cool side of the pillow. Purple's proprietary technology has been innovating comfort for more than 15 years. I could really see it, Ellen, in this little sample grid that they sent us. And it's, it's kind of spongy and sweet and... Anyway, it's really cool. It, it feels feels nice in my hand. I'm sure it feels great under my body as well. And it's purple, which is your favorite color, too. <laughs> it is, it is, it is. You can try every purple product risk-free with free shipping and returns. And purple has financing available as low as 0% APR for qualified customers. Experience the purple grid and you will sleep like never before. Go to purple.com slash SheVotes10 and use promo code SheVotes10. For a limited time, you'll get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash SheVotes10. Promo code SheVotes10 for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Terms apply. By early 1913, the novelty of suffrage had progressed from comic relief to legitimate news story. 
Women had won at least some voting rights in nine states, but the more sweeping amendment to the federal constitution was stalled in Congress. Suffragists hoped to break the logjam by bringing thousands of women to Washington and parading them down Pennsylvania Avenue. That would showcase their cause to the public, politicians, and most of all, the press. Remember, PR was Alice Paul's strong suit. Uh, and she wanted to have a really big spectacle. This thing was planned like to a T to make sure that it was full of beautiful, proper women who came from all corners of the country to show that, you know, this is something nationally that women wanted. Journalism professor Terry Finneman says the organizer's success in generating positive newspaper articles began with beauty. And so there was a lot of focus on on appearance to this parade. So a story, uh, this ran in uh, a West Virginia newspaper, headlined, Suffragettes Will Outdo the Rainbow, noted that the costumes worn by the marchers would include every color in the spectrum and probably then some. The New York Sun wrote that, quote, the most beautiful girls in Washington would serve as trumpeters uh, and that uh, Inez Milholland, deemed by many the most beautiful suffragists in America, uh, would ride a horse. Inez Milholland was the poster girl for liberal causes. Slim, sexy, stunning, a lawyer with long, dark hair flowing down her back. She lived in Greenwich Village and had already led parades in New York City. Inez was the dazzling symbol they needed. And so again, this goes back to to Alice Paul and wanting this thing to look just beautiful and majestic so there was no way that anybody could criticize that these well-looking and well-behaved women were anything but sincere in what they were going after. So, Lynn, we've seen firsthand how the press is lured to huge public events, parades, and marches. You and I reported on the nationwide Women's Strike for Equality Parade in 1970, the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and new generations of reporters gave us every detail about the pussyhat marches of 2016. But I don't remember anyone caring about beauty in either of those events. No, indeed. This was a different era. Don't forget, reporters were mostly men at that 1913 parade in Washington, D.C., and we were only going to get suffrage by convincing men. They were the audience. So suffragists had to play to the same sort of female images that they were also trying to change. Alice Paul staged it like a dramatic production. 5,000 marches, 10 bands, Dozens of floats, contingents of women arranged by state, by profession, by colleges, some men, all heading down Pennsylvania Avenue. Alice Paul arranged that, too, to maximize press coverage. And she insisted on the eve of the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson, the Democrats standing in the way of the suffrage amendment. The police chief said, no, you cannot march on the eve of Woodrow Wilson's presidential inauguration, have it next week. She said, no, we're meeting. Uh, We're going to march on March 3rd because she knew all of the reporters from all over the country would be in town killing time for the next day. And then he said, all right, well, you're not going down Pennsylvania Avenue. And she said, no, we're going to go down Pennsylvania Avenue. On cue, the press 
ver. The press like the Washington Star is talking about, oh, Washington is just full of the pretty uh, women, smart young women getting ready for this parade. And, oh, they're getting lining up their floats and they're bringing in bands. And Inez Milholland has arrived on her white horse. And, of course, Pennsylvania Avenue is where American citizens go to, in a sense, petition for their constitutional rights. So basically what you're saying is the combination of the place, the street, and this gorgeous woman leading it was perfect for the press. Perfect for the press, yes. The Washington Post raved, women's beauty, grace, and art bewilder the Capitol. <laughs> Subhead, miles of fluttering femininity present entrancing suffrage appeal. All that sweetness makes my teeth ache. But Ellen, it wasn't sweetness and light for all the marchers. As we detailed in our last episode, Alice Paul also insisted on segregation to keep African-American women from marching with their white sisters. Ida B. Wells and many others took part anyway, but that story was barely covered in the press. The Chicago Tribune reported on the local angle, the crisis from the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People documented the racism. But the rest of the press covered the march like a beauty pageant. Until the drunken mob attacked. If beauty caught the eye of the press, the male beasts provided the drama. It was a twofer. These, these men start um, grabbing them on their floats. They're throwing cigarettes on them. Um, they're yelling at them. They're swearing at them. They're, they're pulling at them. Uh, one of the Washington paper reports said that 100 people were hospitalized. And this really makes it significant because the newspapers really sided with the women. And they took the tone that these were American citizens. They followed all the rules. They got their permit. They're marching peacefully down Pennsylvania Avenue. And here is this mob attacking them. That's wrong. They had a right to, do, to make their parade. And I argue that it wasn't much of a stretch to say, well, if they have a right to exercise their First Amendment rights, gee, they probably also have a, maybe have a right to vote. With police turning a blind eye to the attacks, the press coverage took on a new dimension. Here's the AP lead. 5,000 women virtually fought their way foot by foot up Pennsylvania Avenue through a surging mob that completely defied the Washington police, swamped the marchers, and broke their procession into little companies. You know, this is unchivalrous to not let these, these women, and these are the Southern newspapers, um, you know, let, let them march peacefully. It's a disgrace. You look at their parade news stories and they're, if they're not neutral, they're, they're actually positive, they're gushing. And again, they have lots of space to fill. They love using photographs. And also it does something that the press usually doesn't do. It starts questioning itself <laughs> and says, gee, in one editorial, we're always telling women, you know, if, if they want to vote, we'll, we'll hear about it. But then when they try to tell us, we not only discourage them, we mob them, you know, or, or we tell them to you know, stay off the streets, stay home. And so they start thinking about it. Um, and you see that reflected in, in the editorials. Um, if they weren't already on board with women voting, they, you know, this, this really made them think that you know, women are citizens. Um, we have to rethink this. You have a feeling that this was a seminal moment, that it changed 
public opinion and brought more people to the cause, men and women? I think it did. Two things kept the issue in the news. Alice Paul made sure the marches wrote up their tales of abuse for local papers across the country. And in Washington, a congressional investigation into the attacks ensured national attention. Spurred on, lawmakers actually took up the cause of suffrage. Congress reactivated its moribund uh, women's suffrage committee. So you start seeing some movement again for a federal constitutional amendment. But it didn't move fast enough for the very impatient Alice Paul. By 1917, four years later, she had broken away from the main organization and formed her National Woman's Party. She enlisted its members to demonstrate in front of Woodrow Wilson's White House, holding giant banners seeking the right to vote. They were called Silent Sentinels. Talk about your photo op. Remember, no one had ever picketed the White House before. Here's actor Hilary Swank portraying Alice, announcing the action to reporters in iron-jawed angels. The National Woman's Party will station sentinels at the White House gate from dawn until dusk every day until the Constitution of the United States is amended to ensure that every citizen, regardless of sex, is entitled to vote for the man who occupies... Or woman. <laughs> or woman. <laughs> who occupies that house. Give that good boy an extra cookie. Hey, it's a movie. But in real life, the first reaction from the press was positive, and the president even tipped his hat every time he passed by. Some of the banners they held up quoted his own words about fighting for democracy abroad. But that April, when the United States joined World War I, the women were accused of being traitors and attacked in front of the White House gate. And guess who was arrested? None of the men who assaulted them. But starting in June, women were thrown in jail. Many would be treated abysmally, confined to filthy, crowded cells, beaten. When Alice Paul was arrested, it got worse. She was sentenced to seven months in jail for obstructing traffic. She was put in solitary confinement, threatened with being moved to an insane asylum. Two weeks in, she called a hunger strike. The government responded by force-feeding her, a brutal punishment which required clamping down her arms and body, stuffing a metal funnel-like contraption into her jaws, and pouring a raw egg concoction down her throat. Alice reported the torture in a note smuggled out to the waiting press. They followed every brutality, day by day, building up outrage against the government. The coverage flipped now supporting the women's cause. And you're going to start seeing that the press starts becoming more sympathetic to them because force feeding is seen as just rather barbaric. Uh, the press doesn't like that. And also, too, the press likes the First Amendment. You know, the women become one of America's first political prisoners and they refuse to be bailed out, most of them. You start seeing more newspapers, not just in Washington, but, but elsewhere, saying, this is too much. Within a month, all prisoners were released. They resumed picketing the White House. They toured the country dressed in prison garb, and the press followed. That led to real results. A year after the picketing started, in January 1917, Congress comes back, and the first thing that the House does is 
pass a suffrage amendment, which is huge. So the press went from ridicule to respect, from ignoring the battle for the ballot to blaring it out in headlines. There's always that moment when an issue gets full media attention, when everyone realizes this is the story. In 1920, the media moment for suffrage was impossible to miss. The final battle for the ballot. Reporters and photographers from around the country had converged on Nashville, Tennessee. Wire services were poised for the bulletin. Suffrage was undeniably front-page news on that unbearably hot and humid day in August 1920. That story next on She Votes. She Votes is produced by Maddie Foley, Edie Allard, and the team at Wonder Media Network. To learn more about our battle for the ballot, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media, on Instagram at WMN.media, or on our website, SheVotesPodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Your presidential playlist is your definitive guide to the presidential election explained by the women who know it best. Host Emily Tish Sussman speaks with elected officials, campaign organizers, and activists to understand this important race. She's asking questions like these. Will we be able to vote safely in the era of COVID? How are local officials adapting to this rapidly changing environment? And perhaps most importantly, How are all of these issues going to play out in the swing states that will decide who wins the presidency? Each week, join Emily to examine what Democrats need to do to win in each state and how you can play a role no matter where you live. Listen and subscribe to your presidential playlist wherever you get your podcasts.